Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quick reminder, everybody, that I am going on tour across Canada when our book comes out in May, The Canada Land Guide to Canada. This is not a reading tour. I'm not standing there reading from the book. This is a show where I'll be performing material from the book. Haven't quite figured out how I'm going to do that, but I better figure that out pretty quickly. Anyhow, I told you about this before, but not all of the tickets had gone on sale. Go to canadaland.com slash book tour and you'll get links to all of the venues, correct dates. On Tuesday, the Toronto tickets are going on sale and we'll announce our partner for that one. Pretty excited about that. And a lot of people were asking about the Montreal date. That is May 20th. We're working with Indie Montreal. We are working with Drawn and Quarterly and we are going to be doing it at the Rialto Theater, all of which is like a dream come true. So I better get my act together. Get yours together. These tickets will go quickly. I don't know. Maybe they'll go quickly. They, they could go quickly. Go to canadaland.com slash book tour and pick yours up right now. This episode is also brought to you by Squarespace. Get your big idea going. Launch your new website using Squarespace or move your old website over to Squarespace and make it a better website. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code CanadaLand. You will get 10% off of your first purchase plus a free domain with the purchase of an annual plan. Crazy news story that you may have read about this aspiring young model and an aspiring young hip hop musician are allegedly lured by this influential hipster into becoming international drug mules, hauling millions of dollars of cocaine from Las Vegas to Australia, getting threatened at gunpoint when one of them tries to back out, ultimately getting busted at the airport in Australia, pleading guilty and now facing possible life sentences. And meanwhile, as this is happening back home here in Canada, their modeling and hip hop careers are like blowing up. So yeah, amazing story. And like the kind of story that you'd expect to read about in Vice, but you will not find a word of it in Vice. And the reason for that is it's about Vice. Sean Craig, formerly a Canada Land reporter, currently with the National Post, has made us proud, working together with veteran crime reporter Adrian Humphreys on this astonishing investigation into Slava Pastuk, 
the former editor of Noisy, which is Vice's music vertical. Sean and Adrian were able to put this story together based on sources who were not musicians or models, but Vice editorial employees, interns, staffers, who had allegedly been approached by Slava Pastuk, who wanted them to also become drug mules. People, this story was huge. It broke some weeks ago, and it was picked up all over the world. But it kind of disappeared here in Canada. The Globe and Mail has this ass-backwards policy, I guess it's more of a practice than a policy, of not even recognizing big scoops if they originate with the National Post. They still think they're fighting the newspaper wars. If they can't ignore a National Post scoop, they will, and they did. And again, Vice ignored this because it was about Vice. They left the talking to their lawyers, which is a bit rich if you look at how Vice dinged the CBC for its mismanagement of the fallout of the Gian Gameshi scandal, which is kind of an analogous case, only in as much as it is also a case of vulnerable young media workers being abused by a protected senior colleague. Anyhow, there is much, much more to this story, and I am dying to hear it all. Sean Craig couldn't make it in this time around, but with me in a moment is the National Post's Adrian Humphreys. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Nicole Wilson, Stephen, Megan Platts, Joel Hart, Damon Walsh, Amanda Wackeruk, Caitlin Cantor, and Monica Lovenmark. Monica, why did you decide to be awesome? Because acknowledging that news items are presented through a biased lens is essential in understanding the news. I think you do this in a witty and transparent manner. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm gonna recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you wanna take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1, try it now, and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Once again, this episode is also brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace makes websites simple. Simple to make, simple to do commerce from, simple to get support 24-7. Support, all of their support is in-house Simple to maintain your website. You don't have to patch anything or upgrade anything. It all happens. The back end is invisible to you. It stays current all the time. That's a big problem with websites. You put a lot of time and energy into building it. In a year or two, it stops working or it looks a little bit old. Squarespace has you covered there. As the web evolves, so does Squarespace. It plugs into anything else you might use. Any e-commerce solution, any social media app, anything that you use to keep content coming, it's all compatible with Squarespace. Their websites are beautiful. They're designed by top designers. You pick the one you want. You choose a template. You pop your information in there. So make your next move. Start your free trial at squarespace.com today. Enter the offer code CANADALAND and you'll get 10% off of your first purchase. And if you buy an annual plan, you will get a free domain. There's some money savings there. Again, that is Squarespace, offer code CANADALAND. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks. This is the time. This is the time to do it. 
it's tax time. Get on it. Go to FreshBooks. It is the solution for your freelance practice, for your small business. Entrepreneurs, listen to me. Have a look at how easy and simple it is to manage the financial side of your business using FreshBooks. It's like having an accounting department when you can't really afford an accounting department. If you do have an accountant who you employ to do your taxes, FreshBooks will spit out information that makes their job very, very simple and your job simple in getting them that information. You can get paid a lot quicker when you use FreshBooks. You can track your time. You can accept credit card payments. You can log your receipts, your expenses very quickly. All of it amounts to a lot more time to do what you love, which amounts to more money. It turns a chore into a breeze. Try it for free for 30 days without having to provide a credit card. Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. When you become a customer, tell them that CanadaLand sent you. You'll be doing the show a favor. We had um, very believable allegations that a senior member of staff who was working as an editor in the Canadian headquarters of Vice Media was recruiting young journalists and young musical uh, and other artists in the Toronto area, well, actually, and beyond, believe it or not, for a what the Australian police referred to as a transnational criminal organization and an organized crime gang. The editor, who is alleged to have been trying to solicit these drug mules, Yaroslav Pashtukov? Correct. Who wrote as Slava Pastuk. Yeah, so so his readers would know him as Slava Pastuk. His friends knew him as Slava or Slava P in his social media accounts, which were prolific. That's the gentleman that uh, uh, we were told and we uh, have allegations that he was uh, sort of this, uh, the friendly face of uh, what appears to be a large um, drug smuggling operation. We should bracket this entire conversation in big allegedly's because none of this in- with reference to Slava has been proven and in fact, uh, there are no charges against Slava. There are no charges against Slava that we are aware of. It's certainly no charges that the Toronto police were made us aware of. Since our stories come out, Toronto police have uh, launched an investigation mm-hmm. uh, by their uh, drugs and organized crime unit into uh, the allegations uh, against him. But he's certainly not been charged. He certainly hasn't had a chance to uh, defend himself in court. We've given him ample opportunity to defend himself in the press. Uh, we spoke to him in person. We approached him in person. And we've emailed him several times. And he uh, has declined to comment. He's declined to discuss this. And he's declined to rebut any of the allegations that we told him in great excruciating detail. What has gone to court is the case of few young people who were charged with bringing large quantities, five to six million dollars worth uh, U.S. of cocaine into Australia. These allegedly are mules, drug mules linked to Slava. So they, uh, I believe, have pled guilty. Yeah. So I'm just let me just bring up one point, and that is actually the one. Uh thing we've cor- corrected in our story was the, the value of the drugs had actually far exceeded what we originally estimated. Uh-huh. And in our subsequent stories, it's between 20 and $30 million worth of cocaine. So yeah, there's basically two facets of uh, the alleged recruitment. And that is um, the two sets of potentially vulnerable people that uh, Slava appears to have had uh, some contact with, and that is young journalists working at or for Vice Canada, and also artists, uh, musicians, uh, DJs, uh, models. We spoke to uh, now several, we're aware of, I believe, five uh, journalists who were allegedly recruited uh, by him, but to say they declined the offer. And then there's the group of the artists and, and, uh, and the models. And uh, of the ones we know of, uh, at least, well, five people have been arrested, one American, four Canadians, in Australia, who allege that they 
accepted a, a deal and, uh, and, and traveled to Las Vegas, collected suitcases that had been doctored to uh, insert bricks of cocaine in the lining, then traveled to Los Angeles where they caught a direct flight to Sydney, Australia, and at the border they were caught. Uh, Australian Federal Police found uh, 81 bricks of cocaine, totaling, I believe, 37 kilos, which have a higher street value in Australia than in Canada, and, uh, and laid these serious criminal charges against them, uh, which carry a life sentence. This is just staggering. And, you know, I want to get into who was targeted here, allegedly, that it was young journalists working in various capacities for Vice Canada and young people in the music scene. That is what Slava was. He was the, the, the noisy editor. He was the music editor. And, you know, this is where it kind of comes into the territory of the media and its influence and from labor relations within the media to the kind of clout that an editor can wield over young aspiring artists. First, let's just like, you know, let's, let's, let's keep just working through what happened. How would Slava Pastuk allegedly solicit these, I mean, you're not talking about people who are of necessarily any kind of criminal culture. You're talking about like freelancers, your sources, as I understand it. And, and to be clear, your sources, their names don't appear in your piece, but you know their names. In the body of our stories on this, we have one named journalist who has come forward and told his story and agreed to have his name published. And we have several people, journalists, who requested their names not be published Partly, some of some of it was out of you know concern for their safety. Um, some of it was out of concern over their professional future. Vice Media is a very desirous location for young journalists to land. They're the hip millennial viewed media conglomerate. They're a four billion dollar enterprise that seems to be able to attract eyeballs that the mainstream media or the legacy media jealously wants. So it's it's a good gig, and that is part of the problem that we allege in our stories because we had staff members, we had interns, and we had freelancers all coming forward, talking to us, and alleging that when they were first approached, they thought they were being approached with a freelance gig for Vice. And this is how the recruitment began. So what the allegation basically breaks down to very similar stories, all told to us independently of an initial entreaty from Slava asking if they would, you know, meet with him. Um, some of these, at least two of the initial setups of the meeting were done on their company's internal messaging system, their Slack, and arranging for a face-to-face outside. At two of those face-to-faces, he made a more direct approach to about this trip, a free trip to Australia, uh, allegedly offering uh, $10,000 uh, for them for completion. All he had to do was take suitcases and not come back with them. And I, I should be clear, he, he never in any of the encounters specifically mentioned cocaine or narcotics or drugs. But all of the people we spoke to said it was very clear about what he was offering. And, and certainly it was a, an illicit substance. He made that very clear that had to be hidden, that had to be, you know, there was some risk involved in taking it across borders. Uh, in another pers- case of a freelancer, the uh, the original entreaty came in uh, Facebook posts about, do you want to go to Australia? And uh, and that person uh, told us that they thought at that point it was a, you know, a huge vice gig, this sort of freelance reporting gig that could put a young journalist on the map, you know, trips to Las Vegas and Australia to report on something that must be important if they're going to spend that kind of money. They subsequently, he uh, allegedly asked to move to text messaging system. And we've seen these Facebook posts and we've seen these texts. And uh, in that it became clear again, she said, it came clear that she, he was actually trying to recruit her to smuggle drugs. 
So this was not just you've got sources who say that they were approached in this way. You saw text messages and Facebook messages. Yeah, in many, if not all, uh, but not all cases, they they re- were able to retrieve uh, Facebook posts that appeared to be from Slava's account. Obviously, we can't be sure who was on the other end of that account. On another case, it was text messages from Slava's phone, and it was a phone number that he continued to use right up until when we called him on it. So we spoke to him on the same phone number that was sending these text messages, but we can't obviously be with certain that he was the one that physically typed up those messages. Someone could have taken his phone. Sure, and you've got to be as thorough and leave room for any possibility. So to quote some of those messages that you found either through his his Facebook or his phone number, you go to Vegas with a friend, you each get two bags for total and there's stuff in the lining, undetectable, and go to Australia where those bags get picked up, 10K on return. Another message, after you take your trip, there's always the option that you find other parties of two to go. There's a 1K referral fee for that. Or you can just tell them it's less than 10 and keep the rest. So those are the messages that your your sources showed you. I, I think it's worth talking about the context. I mean, there is a power imbalance between an editor and a freelance journalist or an intern or even a staffer who's junior to an editor. That can be circumstantial. It seems deliberate and not just circumstantial. They just happen to have a power imbalance. From what your sources tell you, Slava, the vice editor, would approach them when they got fired or when their work relationship with the vice would end, he'd say, hey, sorry about that. But if you want some money, I have an opportunity for you. Or if their internship was running out, he'd say, hey, tough break. But if you're looking for some money, how would you like to go to, to Australia? That's correct. If these allegations are true, it seems like a complete exploitation of that power imbalance. Absolutely. And that was actually an important part of the story for us because beyond just a, a crime story of Canadians being screwed in over in Australia or, or being um, taking the misstep and or being pressured or, or, or threatened into, into doing this, this is absolutely a story about, uh, about the media, about a, an important uh, and growing and, and powerful media entity in Canada and the United States and increasingly around the world. He approached people who were earning small amounts of money, mm-hmm. living in Toronto, and he was offering them allegedly $10,000 for uh, you know a couple weeks work and to put that in context that was as much as more than one half or a third of the annual salary of some of the people he was approaching so you know that that puts the 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 monetary value in context of the of the offer wait some of the people were making $20,000 a year working for vice yes or less uh-huh is our information and also some of them were freelancers, so they were probably earning quite a bit less. Yeah. I mean, if, I don't know what you make advice. I think it's about $150, $200 for a freelance piece. So you're talking about this This gig would get you as much as, what is that? I'm not a mathematician. No, me neither. But we should be able to figure but it out. But a lot. A lot. Uh, my calculation comes out to be a lot. That's a lot of hot takes for Vice uh, if that trip is successful. I'm, I'm interested in your journalism, what you wrote, what you were unable to report. I'm, but I'm interested in the implications of the story. There's just so many ways of looking at this. There's one thing I found in your story that I just want to ask you about. Allegedly, he was not just soliciting people to do this, but he did it himself. And you have a source who told you that uh, Slava Pastuk said he had traveled with a minor Canadian music industry personality whom Slava Pastuk had repeatedly featured in Vice, in stories and videos, including some published within weeks of their alleged trip. And you were able to confirm, looking at the social media accounts of that minor Canadian music industry personality, that there were posts from, was it Vegas in Australia? Correct. You don't name this minor Canadian music industry personality. Correct. Why not? 
We weren't able to contact him to to discuss it in any way, for starters. Also, he wasn't the focus of the uh, investigation in the sense that he wasn't a, a person in a, a position of uh, the power or influence. Uh, we were researching allegations that an editor at Vice used his position with the media conglomerate to engage in the recruitment, and uh, those are some of the some of the reasons we would have uh, taken into that calculus. It makes a lot of sense to me. I, I just find these things fascinating about the process of journalism where there is an element of moral decision-making where you have two different people who are both allegedly not proven, allegedly involved in very serious criminal activity. You name one and not the other, and you name one, you say, well, one was the focus. Well, you chose the focus. That, that, that's an editorial decision. If the story, if these allegations are true, you have somebody who's a real predator and you have some people who are really prey. And it makes perfect sense to me that you would not name the prey. As you say, the cops are now investigating Slava Pastuk. But you are playing God. And there's a sense where journalists have to make these decisions about you are subjecting one person and not the other to a lot of scrutiny and, and possibly criminal consequences. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would say that's not quite an accurate portrayal in this particular instance for, for several reasons, one of which is we had a, a single source telling us that uh, this person took this trip backed up by social media accounts, whereas in the other case, we had multiple, multiple people naming this person, giving some factual evidence regards to text messages and Facebook posts, and we had a, a great opportunity to offer directly uh, in, in multiple ways for the person to respond and rebut. So, so we're not going to name someone based on a single person. For instance, if the original complaint, the original uh, subject that we were exploring came down to a single person with a verbal claim, then I doubt the story would have appeared in the paper, certainly the way it... Yeah. On was. the other hand, you have social media accounts and photographs from that minor music personality and not from Slava Pastic. So on that hand, you have, you have like first source documentation and support but it's, it's not a crime to travel to Vegas in no. Australia. This kind of story, I mean, people might think that we see these kinds of stories more than we do. And you've been covering crime for a long time. To read about crimes in the paper that have not been charged by the cops, it, it doesn't happen that often. I've been involved in a story like that. It gave me a certain perspective for reading your reporting. It's to actually name someone as as an alleged criminal who has not been charged by the cops. You got to be very careful and you want to give them every opportunity to tell their side of it. Yeah, I mean, th that was uh, difficult. I mean, we spent an awful long time, frankly, looking into and researching a story that we had no firm sense that would ever see the light of day. At the start of this uh, investigation, it's on the face of it, it seemed a little improbable that we would actually be able to report the story as fulsomely as we, we were able to. What, what made the difference? When, when did this become publishable in your eyes or in your editor's eyes? You know, it's a, it's a large calculus with many moving parts, but, and it's some of the things we talked about. It was the sheer number uh, of, uh, of credible allegations. It was the, the similarity in their independently provided accounts. It was the credibility of the people telling us. It was the fact that most of the people could back it up with circumstantial or fairly direct evidence of what they were mm -hmm. claiming. It is the public importance and interest of, of the story as well. And it, it, it also stemmed from our ability to really, and genuinely, and, and not just going through the motions, genuinely offering him an opportunity to sit down and try and explain some of this. And you know, was, there, was there a reason why 
these uh, very suspicious text messages were sent. Yeah. Did he, was there a reason why some people might want to say things about him? We gave him a real and legitimate opportunity to do that. Not a cursory one, not a, you know, oh, no comment, thank you very much, put the phone down, run that sucker. And you, you approached him, like, in person? In person, How did that go? on the phone, in email. Um, we know, and the readers will know some of this if they carefully read the story, because, you know, we have a photograph of him actually reading a very lengthy list of questions, completely outlining in great detail our allegations mm-hmm. against him. Uh, we physically handed him this list. We wanted him to be deeply aware of what we were exactly saying, how we knew it, and why we were saying it. And he did that. And we watched him for many minutes pacing around reading this list of questions, page after page after page. I spoke to him on the phone, uh, asked him uh, repeatedly, you know, are you sure you don't want to comment? I asked him if I could, can you let me at least tell you what we're going to say about you or want to say about you just to see if, you, and, and he said yes, and he allowed me to give the outline of that. My colleague, of course, Sean Craig, who was very instrumental in this story, you know, did a similar uh, thing in person. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Extensively. And you, people think sometimes that an investigator, that a, that a journalist would want, oh, okay, no comment, great. You want his side of it. I wanted his side and I wanted to to have every side. Yeah. Interesting digression here. I mean, it's you know, you can kind of reverse engineer these things and say, what, what's the right playbook? It obviously was not the right playbook for him in denying comment at every juncture. It didn't prevent the story from publishing. That's a reasonable strategy in a lot of cases. If you just don't give the journalist anything, you are increasing the odds that the story will get spiked. However, if he had been able to provide you not just plausible, like it doesn't even have to get up to plausible rather, falling short of plausible, but a version of things that explains those texts and explains this, that you would be unable to falsify. You'd be unable to prove it wrong. He may have been able to spare himself this exposure. I mean, if we didn't believe the story to be true, we absolutely wouldn't publish it. Uh, if that's a roundabout way of asking that. The the the, uh, the flip side is if he sat down and gave us a, a long uh, interview then we would have to have a long conversation with editors and and Sean Craig and I and and, and our lawyers and and we would really have to make some hard decisions. Yeah. Well, okay. We'll we'll leave that for the J School discussion. Let's keep going about just what happened because the other side of this is that this was all happening within Vice's offices or much of it was happening within Vice's offices and within the structures that they create. So let's just talk practically about their response. Now, they told you through their lawyer, uh, who happens to be Marie Hanane's partner, Brian Hutchison, Vice says they knew nothing about this while it was happening. And as soon as it came to their attention, they got rid of Slava, they fired him, they called the cops and they investigated internally. Is that true? That is true. That's what they told us. Is what they told you true? We had some concerns about the uh, thoroughness of their investigation. None of the people we spoke to, both the people that uh, told us they had uh, been solicited and people that told us they had not been solicited, none of the current or former employees advice that we spoke to, except for one, could tell us that uh, they were aware, uh, they had been made aware of the situation by, by management. None of them were able to, told us that they had been asked whether they had been approached or even accepted. I mean, stop and think for one, it's a slight digression, I apologize, but stop to think for a minute. If, if, if the people we know about are the people that are most likely to speak to the press or people that said no to the offer, how do we know that some people didn't say yes beyond the ones that are arrested in Australia? Mm-hmm. How do we know some people in the vice office didn't say yes? So that was a ca- an investigation that I would have thought they would have thoroughly made, and it does not appear to have been made that. 
We also had some concerns about their um, suggestion that they had contact with police. I'd, uh, I'm not going to prepare to call anyone a liar. I, I suggest there was contact with police, but there had not been a report made to police, and that's a keen distinction. The Toronto Police made it very clear to us. They searched under various names uh, of people who might report. They searched under the name of the uh, the alleged uh, accused uh, the, and the employee, and it is quite clear to from what Toronto Police says to us that a report had not been made to them about this incident. To summarize that, Vice says that when they found out about this solicitation of drug trafficking in their office by one of their own senior editors, they called the cops. You were unable to find any record of that. The cops had had no knowledge of this. And To when, clarify, the police were able to find no record of this. The police were able to find no record of this. And when you reported these things, the police did take interest in it and opened up an investigation. Yeah, there's one slight step in between is that after our story appeared, Vice and their, and their counsel then did in fact report it to police. And uh-huh. he sort of said to us, yeah, this time we really are. And I confirmed that the report had been made. And Toronto Police uh, told me that they've launched an investigation. And they also, uh, Vice told us that they had reactivated their original investigation. However, in our last contact with our sources, they all, or, or at least the ones I personally contacted, said that they had still not been spoken to by anyone from Vice about their experience or from Toronto Police for that matter. I mean, this is, it, it takes to an extreme, you know, we look at these issues on the show of uh, unpaid internships or freelancers hoping to get the next gig and just how how stacked the industry is against newcomers and entrants. And you add to this, this hipness factor of vice and it extends beyond just aspiring journalists. Slava had the ability not just to give press to an aspiring musician, a DJ or a rapper, but Vice really blurs the line between we'll feature you, give you press, they can book you for their concerts, uh, they can work with you on sponsorship deals. So it's not like they put you on a platform and other people throw money at you. They can, like, they're, they're becoming kind of like a 360 shop that can make celebrities. That gives them in music scenes, music culture, hip hop scene, an incredible amount of schlep. Like they've got kind of kingmaker status that I don't know how they can kind of distance themselves completely from the actions of this editor, uh, which is obviously their intention. They're very quick to tell you that they have a zero tolerance policy around drug use in their office. That is hard to separate from, I mean, it's called vice. And I remember the early parties in Montreal. I remember an early issue where there was a rails of cocaine on the cover of vice magazine, the vice guide to drugs. What are your thoughts on how seriously that zero drug policy is taken and what did you learn about drug culture within Vice? Yeah, I mean, drugs uh, have apparently played uh, an important part of Vice throughout its history. I mean, we, Shane, Shane Smith, the founder and current uh, head honcho of uh, the entire Vice uh, conglomerate, once said in an interview that he was a he slung drugs or cocaine, uh, and that's where he learned his business acumen. We weren't able to independently confirm uh, his his self declaration. Shane Smith has said a lot of things, but whether it's true or not, that's what the big boss says. Well, we asked him to clarify, and we got an amusing email back from him that said "WTF, so stupid." Um, so that was his official uh, comment to uh, to us on, on that allegation. But um, but more importantly to this editor in this circumstance is many people at Vice or former employees' advice said that it was a very drug-tolerant environment. Editorially, it was drug-tolerant or even drug-friendly that um, 
they witnessed personally cocaine being used in the vice office Christmas party at vice uh, after work events that um, several people told us about being invited back to an apartment of, uh, of the vice editor in question and, and being offered drugs there. And, and more, actually, more importantly, they told us that they suspect that their involvement in either doing a bump of coke with the editor or in the presence of the editor or their apparent ease with being around drugs may have made him think that they are more likely to be an approachable person to make this offer. Sure. Some of the people that uh, we approached were more straight edge or straight edge in appearance than others. Mm -hmm. And as a general characterization, I would say those are the people that were not or, or tell us that they were not approached by Slava. So drug use, drug tolerance, the, the presence of drugs uh, within the vice milieu appears to have been a factor, alleged factor in these, it's this recruitment. I mean, I don't mean to like make this sound super alarmist. It, it'll surprise exactly no one that there's a lot of drug use around Vice. I think they've been upfront about that. The founders say they used to send drugs to people when they were selling ads to them. Their parties are notorious. I know people like it's just and, and you know, a lot of people would just say that's just not a big deal. And you know that that's what you're getting uh, at least around, if not directly involved in. I think that the more interesting thing is not to suggest that this is itself some vast criminal conspiracy, but that it laid it laid the groundwork for somebody who wanted to exploit that in a really unique way. Jordan Gardner, who is young Torontonian, who is now in an Australian prison waiting perhaps a life sentence, uh, has no prior criminal history, was sort of a up-and-coming young person in the music scene who was Slava's former roommate. I mean, you have to feel terrible for people who, you know, found themselves in this situation. Uh, You know, you've got got sources saying that they they didn't want to go to management when, when Slava allegedly approached them because there's a conception there that Slava was tight with the inner circle, with senior management. How far back can we trace Slava with with the people who are running Vice Canada? I mean, he was, you know, considered an early hire. He came on as a staff writer sort of prior to its big expansion. So while he wasn't a day oneer um, in that sense, he was when most of the people if not all of the people we spoke to, I'm not entirely certain, to be honest, arrived at Vice, he was already firmly ensconced. Yeah. Once he became an editor at Vice, that definitely put him in a, a category of uh, direct report. In some cases, it put him in a category of, of being a management or a boss. It's certainly a person of influence. And he also was a very personal, friendly guy. And he appeared, they tell us, to have been very personally tight in a social way and, and a professional way with the senior management. I mean, one person explicitly told us they didn't want to report it because they didn't know who was involved and who was his, you know, who was right. a friend with. How high does it go? You know, the, the, that type of that type of language. You, you, when you're immediately shocked that an editor is is doing this and in not that secret a fashion, it, it can make you ask these types of questions. So they also didn't want, especially like in the case of the freelancer who relied upon Slava to greenlight freelance assignments and hit perhaps his friends, certainly his colleagues, to greenlight them if she was pitching or he was pitching for another section. Then, you know, what they thought of him or her was important to them. It could make or break uh, their career. So reputation, whether they're seen as a a company-friendly person or an editor-friendly person or a good person um, mattered to them. 
I could really understand how working there, you would internalize a sense of like no snitches and, and you know, the kind of the way that people echo things they've seen in movies. You're working for like a, a media company making, you know, branded content videos. But I think that that kind of ethos would, would be common. I, it would put you in a pretty tricky position. Actually, let me, let me ask you that. Of the sources, you know, you talk about your three primary sources. One was a full-time staffer. One was an intern. One a former intern who was at the time a freelance contributor. I noticed that those were written in the past tense. Those people were afraid to go to management because they were afraid of endangering their relationship with Vice. Do any of them still work for Vice? I don't think I should discuss that right now. Okay. Um, giving information uh, on, on unnamed sources can be yeah, dangerous. Okay. Uh, we struggled with the language uh, and we wanted to be as careful as possible. Mm-hmm. And I will point out when you talk about the three primary sources, we've, we've since added to that in subsequent stories. So we have you know more than those three. We now have, um, we now know of, I think, six, seven, eight people that have uh, alleged uh, his recruitment. So. Yeah, I guess it's uh, not worth connecting any dots here, but I, I, I guess I am curious if they were if their fears of estranging themselves from management and their own career prospects were were warranted. But perhaps a footnote not worth uh, putting anyone at risk. Following up on this uh, this idea that he was tight with the inner circle, yeah, and you alluded to this earlier that you know Vice has really undergone just a, a massive changes, and uh, you know the Big Rogers deal corporatization. The Canada office went from, I believe, I, mean, I remember when they were this teeny outfit on Dundas, I think there were like 10 people. And uh, I think their primary purpose was just to kind of make a little bit of Canadian content and provide a way to sell some Canadian ads. But those, that core of people, a lot of them are still present commanding an army of journalists and music journalists and video editors and all sorts of people. The status there has a lot to do with, you know, how, how soon were you in? I think you're right that Slava became uh, an editor in, was it 2011 or 2013? In, in that time frame. In that time frame. But uh, I'm pretty sure that he was involved back in those Dundas Street days. It's quite possible. I, I've, you know, it's been a while since um, I've been uh, studying his resume. Okay. I, was it perceived Patrick McGuire runs uh, Vice Canada? Was he was Slava considered a friend of Patrick McGuire's? The people we spoke to said yes. Uh, and in fact, one person said that they realized that something must have happened when uh, Patrick unfriended Slava on uh, on Facebook, and that okay. coincided with about the time he was fired. Uh, that that was certainly the perception of some of the, the rank and file. But none of them ever suggested in any way that, uh, that Patrick had any knowledge or say in the recruitment at the time. Nor am I suggesting that myself, uh, only that if in fact he was perceived to be a friend of Patrick McGuire's, if he was an early friend of Patrick McGuire's, it's one more reason, a disincentive for anyone to go to management with these with, with these allegations. And certainly when Slav was hired as the noisy editor, Patrick put out a, a, a tweet saying that he's super stoked, quote unquote, to have to have a noisy Canada editor, noisy, noisy music editor in Canada and encouraging indie artists to, uh, to get in touch with Slava. I think your, your story spoke to the questions that a lot of people are asking, because we're talking about a multi-billion dollar business at this point, where everyone wants to know, can they legitimize? Can they somehow get beyond? I mean, they still have at their helm, Shane Smith, a guy who claims to have this criminal past. They still have their origins in outrageous, sometimes very racist opinions in exploitation of their workforce, who they explicitly called uh, a cult and a sweatshop, Shane Smith's words. Everything that they kind of flung around rather brazenly in this sort of radical honesty of what they were doing, but really owning a lot of behavior that you would not (laughs) necessarily want to equate yourself to if you're trying to kind of, uh, you know, become a a good corporate citizen. Are they going to be able to make that, that leap or not? 
I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that and, w- and whether that's not something that your, uh, your investigation kind of concerns itself with at all. Yeah, I have a few, I have a few thoughts on that. For starters, I'll say that um, people we spoke to have said that the, the office is different now than it was. One current senior person said it's not the quote-unquote the party scene it used to be. And in fact, it's going on to say it's now as boring as any other newsroom. You know, hey, I'm at the National Post. I'm a day one at the National Post, and I witnessed firsthand the corporatization uh, of a news outlet. Uh, we were, we were sure we were a, a major player with, with with some establishment behind it, but in, in, at its heart, we were a startup. Sure, they had Shane Smith. You had Conrad Black. I mean, we had, sure, and we, you know, we both, had both we had Friday only one drinks. Of been in prison. You know? We had Friday martinis. We had Friday beer. We, we, you know, we did things that other media didn't do. I don't know if you can compete with Vice on uh, the early. No, posties. but what I'm saying is that. That uh, corporatization is largely inevitable if you're going to proceed to financial success. One day, Canada Land, uh, you may have a vision of uh, being a, a more successful, larger uh, operation, and, and you might not be able to have the same sort of casual freedoms you do around this office. And I'm not suggesting you do anything criminal or illegal in this office, but I'm sure it's a slightly different vibe, although I must say all your workers were very studiously working when they walked in, might be a little different vibe than, say, the ROB in the Globe and Mail. So I've witnessed that firsthand. I understand uh, the, the corporatization, the need for corporatization and professionalism as you move forward. But 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 the fact that this is a journalistic entity that is uh, wants to be increasingly important and more important on on the media in the media landscape. It wants to move beyond sort of music and party and social and trends and culture reporting and to move on to very serious and important journalism. It needs to be aware of itself being a part of the establishment. This is a media entity hiring journalists to expose the misconduct of others. And journalists are supposed to be the watchdogs. They're supposed to be the guardians uh, of proprietary. They're supposed to be the guardians of miscon- against misconduct and injustice. So I think it's legitimate questions to be asking about what their response to this hiccup in their organization is. I think that's a legitimate question to ask, and I thought we got some quite revealing answers. The other thing I'd like to say is that I think what our story also revealed is that there is extremely good, talented, and good-hearted journalists working for Vice. The fact that some of them risks their careers or their jobs to speak to us about what they considered misconduct or injustice within their own shop really says to me that they have the heart of the heart of a lion in the journalistic sense. The standards they would apply outside their work office in, in creating their journalism should apply to a certain degree within their own shop. And, and that was an injustice or misconduct, allegedly, that they wished to expose. And I think that that whistleblower mentality, that exposure mentality that they had is very important. And I read Vice, and they do do some uh, some good quality journalism there that that, that should be lauded. So you know, we're not out to to sink Vice. We're not out to to attack Vice. We are out to investigate what we were perceived and were told and alleged was what uh, was this uh, particular act of of misconduct and injustice. Adrian, thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. That's your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me anytime. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. 
Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Full schedule of CanadaLand podcasts coming to you this week. Tomorrow, Tuesday, is CanadaLand Commons, episode three with your new hosts. Check it out. Then on Wednesday, there's a new episode of The Imposter, and I will be back on Thursday with Shortcuts. Russell Gregg is the producer of this show. He also handles syndication to campus and community radio stations across this country. If you like what we do, please support us. Thank you.